everyone. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of the VectorCast, a podcast about classic arcade vector games. I'm your host, Michael Zenner, coming to you from lovely Portland, Oregon. This is Season 1, which is the season of Atari, and in each episode we'll focus on a particular game going in order of development. And this is Episode 1, so we'll be discussing Atari's first vector game, which is the legendary Lunar Lander. Lunar Lander is a single-player game that simulates, well, landing a spacecraft on the moon. It was Atari's first vector game, and it was launched in August of 1979. It uses a 19-inch black-and-white vector monitor, which is what qualifies it for inclusion in the VectorCast. The hardware was designed by Howard Delman, and Rich Moore was primarily responsible for the programming, and both of them were engineers for Atari at the time, so this was an in-house design. It wasn't a game that was licensed from another developer, as sometimes happened. As you walk up to the game, a few things will jump right out at you. First, the cabinet is big, it's angular, and it really, it's kind of imposing. It's got great presence, and it just screams late 70s and early 80s. Uh, it's the same design that Atari would use for its next game, Asteroids. So if you've ever seen an Asteroids game, the full-size one, you've seen this cabinet. The cabinet is painted black, and the side art is mainly bright blues and oranges, and interestingly, it shows the lander setting down on a landing pad on a space station or something that looks to me like it was inspired in equal parts by the original Star Trek and the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. In any case, it's not landing on the moon, but that's okay. We'll see later in the season. This is actually pretty close for Atari side art. As you get closer to the game, you'll spot the lighted marquee above the display, and it has a black background. Once again, a very late 70s looking design. It's got the name of the game, Lunar Lander, in nice big fat type. And uh, it's got a picture of the lander getting ready to set down. Uh, and this time it's got a blazing orange sun behind it. It looks, again, so very 70s. And this time, though, the lander is getting ready to touch down on the lunar surface. Just below the marquee, you'll see the display, which is that 19-inch black and white vector monitor. And for those of you who are into such things, it is an Electrohome Geo 5-801, which is the earlier version of the Geo 5-802, and also the Wells Gardner 19V2000, which are the more commonly found black and white monitors in Atari games. And I think it is very likely we will be doing a deep dive bonus episode where we talk about the uh, particular and specific monitors that Atari used. Now just below the display, but above the control panel, there's a plastic piece that runs the width of the panel. It's probably three or four inches high, and it's got five square boxes drawn on it. The leftmost box is the instruction card, which has the rules for the game, and the other four are the various difficulty levels. There's a difficulty button on the control panel that the player uses to cycle through them, and the currently selected difficulty has a lamp behind it, so it is backlit, so it indicates what difficulty the game is currently set for. Continuing on, the control panel is a single piece of bent sheet metal with a panel art silkscreen directly onto it. Again, we've got some great late 70s art going on here. And this is where we find what I think of as one of the most iconic controls of any arcade game. I'm talking, of course, about the thrust control. It takes up a huge amount of real estate on the panel. It pretty much dominates about a third of the entire control panel. The base of it is a half cylinder or a partial cylinder, and there's two levers sticking out of slots in the base, and they're connected with a crossbar, which is the handle, where the player grips it and can shove it forward and pull it back. And it's spring-loaded, so if the player lets go of it, it snaps back to the zero position. I really like this controller. It's really industrial and heavy and just beefy looking, and it's just one of my favorite examples of control design. It really is the first thing you notice about this game when you walk up to it, and it's pretty much the last thing you're going to remember about it. 
The rest of the controls on the panel are a series of volcano buttons, and if you're unfamiliar with those, they are small conical shrouds. They're maybe three quarters of an inch across at the bottom. And at the top where the peak would be, there's a small tactile little clicky button on top, and usually the button is lit up by an LED. So it's basically a little metal or plastic cone with a flashing red light on top, so that's how it got to be called a volcano. Okay, anyway, there are a number of volcano buttons on the panel. On the left side, there's a start button and a difficulty select button. And right by where the player's left hand will kind of naturally fall on the panel, there are left and right rotate buttons. And on the right hand side, near the thrust controller, is a button labeled abort. On the screen, in the upper left hand corner, score, fuel, and time are displayed. And in the upper right hand corner, altitude, vertical speed, and horizontal speed are displayed. And all of the values are displayed as numbers, as little you know, digital numbers. The rest of the screen displays a side view of a rough lunar surface comprised mostly of steep, craggy hills, but with a few flat spots. The flat spots, of course, are where the player is going to want to try to land. The lander is really noticeably reminiscent of the lunar module that NASA used for the Apollo lunar landing missions of the late 1960s and early 70s, which really isn't terribly surprising. Prepare for battle. Okay, gameplay. Once you put your quarter in and hit the start button, play begins. The lander first appears at the top left of the display, and gravity begins to pull the lander down toward the surface, and also orbital mechanics, apparently, are moving the lander from the left side of the display toward the right. And the player uses their right hand on the thrust controller to smoothly add thrust to counter the gravitational pull and adjust the speed of the descent. And the player uses their left hand to use the left and right rotate buttons to aim the craft in the appropriate direction. Now, of course, the craft is flying backward through this whole process. So the idea is to point the bottom of the lander in the direction it's moving so as to slow it down and get it under control. Now, both using thrust and rotating the lander consume fuel, which is what determines how long the game goes. So it's a good idea to try and keep your use of the controls to a minimum. The game ends when the player runs out of fuel, regardless of how many successful or failed landings the player racks up. The thrust controller actually has 10 levels of thrust based on the angle of the lever, but since there's only so much travel available on the lever, it really feels smooth and it really feels like an analog application of thrust. Push the controller further forward, get more thrust, pull back, get less. The game starts pretty quickly and gravity starts pulling right away, so it's a good idea to identify a landing spot without taking too much time to admire the magnificent desolation. And if you wonder what I meant by that, go read up on, or go Google Buzz Aldrin. When the lander starts to get close to the surface, the display zooms in on the area surrounding the lander in the nearby terrain. Now, if the lander touches any part of the surface that isn't completely flat or lands on one of the flat spots, but too hard or with too much horizontal speed, the lander will crash. The game then tells the player what a terrible job they've done, often pointing out just how expensive the lander was or how big the crater is. Now, at any point prior to contact with the surface, if the player decides that things are just not looking good, the abort button will roll the lander into a straight up and down vertical orientation and apply maximum thrust and hopefully moving the lander out of harm's way, but of course at a significant cost in fuel. A successful landing requires the lander to touch down extremely gently on one of the flat spots on the surface with very little horizontal speed. Even if the player is able to land without crashing, there's a chance that the landing will be hard, in which case the game will tell the player that, despite not crashing, something really important has been broken. However, if the player lands the craft just so, they will be rewarded with a really nice compliment along the lines of, the eagle has landed. 
Each of the flat landing spots on the surface have score multipliers below them, ranging between 2 and 5. Wide flat spots with just a little bit of rising terrain nearby are easier and so have a lower score multiplier, while smaller, higher spots near steep terrain, which are a lot more hazards to land on, of course, have larger multipliers. A perfect landing is worth 50 points times the multiplier, so a successful landing with the highest multiplier, which is 5x, awards the player 250 points. Now this is the maximum available score for a perfect landing. Now if you do manage to pull off such a skillful trick, you will also be rewarded with an extra 50 fuel units, which unfortunately just really isn't very much in this game. A hard landing that isn't a crash is still worth 15 points, uh, again times the multiplier, but no fuel bonus. And on the low side, crashing still awards the player 5 points, although I discovered that if the lander crashes on a site that has a multiplier, you get the benefit of it, so that 5 points can actually be up to 25 if you crash on a 5x landing spot. Crashes also, though, incur an additional fuel penalty beyond what you used up in the run-up to the impact. Like I said before, the game continues on until the player runs out of fuel, regardless of how many times the player crashes or lands. Interestingly, more fuel can be added at any time by putting in more coins, so in effect there is an infinite buy-in available. Now, the amount of fuel that the player receives at the beginning of the game, as well as any time another coin is inserted, is something that can be set via dip switches by the operator. The default settings allow for 750 units of fuel per coin, uh, which is also the starting amount of fuel, and the dip switches will allow options from as little as 450 fuel units to as much as 1800 fuel units, depending on the revision of the ROM that's installed in the individual game. I did discover, though, that it is possible that with clever use of the dip switches, an operator can set up a game so that if the player puts a coin in the right-hand slot, not the left-hand slot, but the right-hand coin slot, you can get up to 5,400 points, 5,400 fuel units per coin. So the game has four levels of difficulty, and the player has the option at the beginning of the game and at any point thereafter to change the difficulty, and change, increasing the difficulty increases the number of high-value landing sites, as well as adds momentum to the lander's rotation at the highest difficulty level. On the lower difficulty levels, the lander will stop rotating when the player releases the rotation button. So if you push the left rotate button, you get the lander into the orientation you want, let go of the button, and it'll stay there. On the highest level of difficulty, though, there's momentum to it. So when you push the button, you have to wait a little while for the lander to start rotating. And then once it gets to where you're going, if you let go, it will continue spinning. So you have to counter it by using the opposite rotation button. This just makes it really insanely difficult, in case anybody's curious. My own experience with Lunar Lander began as it did with so many other games at Rico's Pizza, which was located in the city of Beaverton, which is a suburb of Portland, Oregon, where I currently live and where I grew up. And for as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by the moon, by NASA, and all things space programs. So Lunar Lander had an immediate appeal to me. And I think this is what kept my interest in the game, my interest in the subject matter, because this game is just really, really hard. Even on the lowest difficulty, Really, the game really takes extreme precision on the controls. Uh, many times when I thought for sure I was going to make a perfect landing, I had everything lined up just right, and then the lander would either just explode on impact, or if I did manage to get it on the ground in one piece, and it just looked to me again like it wasn't moving at all. I got the message that I destroyed something really important, uh, and which meant I didn't get the full score, and I didn't get the full fuel bonus that I would have gotten had I somehow managed to do it exactly right. 
Now, I don't usually like to talk about world records on the VectorCast because they are kind of a moving target. They get beaten from time to time, and you know, I don't want the I don't want the podcast to appear dated. But there are some aspects of what it takes to set a world record on some of these games that I do want to talk about, and this is one of those cases. The uh, most recent world record that I'm aware of, using the Twin Galaxy settings, which allow for starting with 750 fuel units and, of course, no allowance for adding additional coins, is 2,075 points. And that was achieved by Dan Whitmarsh in August of 2010. Now, the reason I bring this up is uh, because a world record game of Lunar Lander lasts just about 8 to 10 minutes. And of course, if you allow additional fuel to be added, you can just pump quarters in all night and you know who cares? That's not a meaningful record. But if you are just playing on one coin or one credit, one fuel load, you can set a world record in eight to 10 minutes. And that to me is an indication of just how hard and brutal this game is, that the best players in the world can only manage to get 10 minutes out of this game. <laughs> So Atari's Lunar Lander, as it happens, was actually not the first game to simulate landing on the moon. As early as 1969, while the actual Lunar Lander was landing on the moon, text-based moon landing simulators were being written on mini-computers. So in 1973, Digital Equipment Corporation, also known as DEC, who was best known at the time for their PDP and VAX mini-computer systems, uh, both of which will turn out to be part of the history of Vector Arcade games, we'll be talking about them in future VectorCast episodes, Anyway, DEC commissioned engineer Jack Burness to create a game called Moonlander, which was a lunar landing simulator as a demonstration of the capabilities of the GT40, which is a new line of vector graphics terminals. Moonlander was distributed with new PDP and VAC systems, which also made it an early pack-in game, if you want to think of it that way, for a monstrously expensive, institutionally-sized computer system. Now, the GT40 included an integral light pen, which is what Moonlander's player used to guide the lander to the surface. So you're playing with a light pen on the screen. Moonlander also contained a really interesting Easter egg. After a successful landing on the correct spot, a McDonald's restaurant would appear, and an astronaut would climb out of the lander, walk over to the restaurant, and order a Big Mac. Unfortunately, this Easter egg did not make it into Lunar Lander, and more on that in just a minute. And if it seems that Moonlander, as I've just described it, was the direct inspiration for Lunar Lander, that is because, well, it was. Following the 1978 release of Cinematronic Space Wars, which we will be discussing in a future episode in Season 2, Atari engineers Rick Moncrief and Howard Delman set to the task of developing a vector display system that Atari could use in its own line of arcade vector games. Delman worked primarily on the vector generation hardware, and Moncrief worked mainly on the monitor. Once they had succeeded in creating the platform, which Atari released under the name of QuadraScan, they needed a game concept to develop for it. So Delman came up with the idea of Lunar Lander, inspired by a similar game that he recalled seeing, which was almost certainly Moonlander. The vector generator that Delman produced was known as the Digital Vector Generator, and it went on to be used in Atari's next two vector games, Asteroids and Asteroids Deluxe, which we will be talking about very shortly in the next and the next episode after that on the VectorCast. Software engineer Rich Moore, who had previously worked on Atari's gigantic Hercules pinball game, and Howard Delman, worked closely together developing Lunar Lander, and like all good engineering teams did, they bounced ideas back and forth as they fine-tuned the game. Moore drew out the initial vectors on graph paper, duplicating from memory the landscape of the original Moonlander game. 
He also wanted to include the McDonald's Easter egg that had been in Moonlander, but unfortunately it was too resource intensive, so it was left out. The same was true of Moore's idea of leaving the craters from prior crashes on the screen. The original idea was that the craters from the prior crashes would be there in the wreckage of the lander and all that. But it turns out that with the new hardware they were using, there were only so many lines that could be left on the screen while maintaining a reasonable refresh rate, so unfortunately both of those features had to be left behind. There was also a great deal of discussion about the trade-off between realism and difficulty. Moonlander had three levels of difficulty, and eventually they landed on four levels. Yeah, I know. Haha. One development that I am particularly glad about is that the original concept for the thrust control was just a regular joystick, but Delman wanted something more visceral and more physical. In the July 2010 issue of Retro Gamer magazine, Delman explains, I wanted something massive. I wanted something you could grab with your whole hand. When we'd be playing with that thing in the lab, I would grip it so tightly and try to push it through the stop to get that bit more fuel burn. He also added in a rubber stop at the end of the lever's travel to give players the impression that there might be just a little tiny bit more thrust available if you just pushed a little bit harder. Once it was released, Lunar Lander would have to be categorized as a moderate success. 4,830 units were produced. And oddly enough, it seems that a marketing opportunity was missed as Lunar Lander's release date, which was August of 1979, was only a month after the 10th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. As it happened, there's no indication that anyone at Atari, or for that matter at NASA, thought to use the occasion as any sort of promotion for the game or use the game as any part of a celebration of the occasion. Now, Lunar Lander may have had a longer run, but Atari's next game, Asteroids, would be such a runaway hit that, as Moore put it, it kind of consumed all the oxygen in the room. Now, along with co-opting the last 300 Lunar Lander cabinets, the success of Asteroids also preempted the release of a two-player cocktail table version of Lunar Lander. Now, two prototypes were built, one of which found its way into Rich Moore's home. How cool would that be? A two-player cocktail version of Lunar Lander. If you're interested in playing Lunar Lander, there are a number of ways by which you can check it out. Now, like all the games we'll be covering on the VectorCast, Lunar Lander has been ported to MAME, and there's a number of websites where you can actually play the game right in your browser. It even comes as one of a number of games that are included when you buy a new Tesla. So yes, you can play Lunar Lander in your brand new Tesla. Please not while you're driving. I'm sure they, it, it's not going to let you do that. Now, I admit, I've been looking at Tesla's website. <laughs> Uh, with that in mind. Now, versions of Lunar Lander are also playable on uh, a number of classic Atari collections on numerous PC and game console platforms. It is just everywhere. Now, I personally actually have Lunar Lander in a Braze multi-game kit in my Asteroids Deluxe Cabaret. And like I said before, Lunar Lander is a really hard game. And when, you're, when you've got a button for thrust instead of the lever, it's even harder. Even so, it's a great port, and it's a really fun way to play, and it is going to work just fine for me until I can find a cabinet, which in my opinion is still the best way to play this game. It's a classic, and it's significant, and in its native form, it really is something to be experienced. So if you want to try to acquire a Lunar Lander in the original cabinet, there right now seem to be two options. One is to hand over a significant handful of cash. Now, Pricing and value are moving targets, and I don't like to talk about them. They vary widely over time and by location, so I really can't get specific except to say that right now Lunar Lander cabs seem to be highly valued by collectors. So if you want to try to get one from another arcade enthusiast, you can expect to pay a substantial amount. 
Now, the other way I've seen Lunar Landers change hands is to find someone who's had one sitting in their basement for decades, has never been interested in it, and now just wants it gone. Of course, this is a much less reliable method, but occasionally it does still happen. So yeah, the $100 Craigslist Lunar Lander still occasionally shows up, but like I said, it's not a reliable way to look for one. Okay, now we're gonna get a bit more technical. Once you do manage to get your original Lunar Lander game, the good news is that Lunar Lander appears to be a relatively headache-free game to own and love. Lunar Lander's game PCB is a single board based on a 6502 microprocessor, which is what Atari used for almost all their games of the era. It also used an early version of the AR1 sound amplifier and power supply board, and Atari continued to use versions of this power supply board, not just in vector games, but also in almost all their raster games for a number of years. And if there are any weak points, they would be primarily in the monitor and the thruster, and that's not because they're particularly troublesome, they're just less common, so if they break, you may have a harder time finding replacement parts. The thruster is obviously unique to the game, and until recently, one potentiometer inside was particularly hard to find if it ever went bad. Now, however, the collecting community appears to have found a workable substitute fairly recently, and as of the time of this recording, it appears that at least one run of reproduction thrust levers is forthcoming sometime in the future. Now, unlike the black and white monitors that Atari used in later games, the Geo5801 is much less common and it's a bit more has a bit more complicated board set than the later monitors that Atari used. Now, it's still a perfectly serviceable monitor, but the later versions of the Geo5, you know, the 802, as well as the Wells Gardner 19V2000 and for that matter the 15V2000, which is the 15-inch version used in the cabaret and cocktail games are almost entirely interchangeable and parts are relatively easily available. Although as with all technology that's been out of production for more than 30 years, they aren't getting any less expensive. On the plus side though, vector monitors are actually in general much simpler devices than raster monitors and as such they're easier to work on I think and much simpler to service or even rebuild. Also like almost all Atari games of the period, the 5 volt power line which is the last two traces on the edge connector on the game board, is susceptible to overheating and sometimes burning. This is due mainly to a design feature of the AR power supply boards called the sense circuit. And the idea is that the power supply will increase voltage on the five volt line when it detects that it's gotten low. Five volts, of course, is what the board operates on. And so this was intended to keep games working in an operating environment for as long as possible. They didn't want the game to just go down if the 5 volt failed, if it just, you know, if it was, had lost a little bit of voltage. So what it would do is sense the, the decrease and then increase the amount of voltage that it was sending along the line. Now the problem occurs when the connection between the game board and the wiring harness starts to get loose or some corrosion starts to build up on that edge connector. The result is that the resistance at the connection increases and that increases the heat at the connection. And eventually as the power supply continues to detect the drop, it sends more energy through and as that resistance increases, it generates more heat and you get this positive feedback loop going that eventually ends up actually damaging the edge connector on the PCB. Now this is a potential problem with any Atari arcade game using an AR type power supply and it is a relatively simple repair for someone who understands how to repair Atari PCBs. And finally, keep in mind that the last Lunar Lander to roll out of the Atari factory did so right around 40 years ago. 
the cabinets were made out of particle board, which made the surfaces nice and smooth and gave them a good amount of mass. But particle board is notoriously sensitive to moisture. So if you're looking at a game, make sure to check very thoroughly for water damage. Reproduction side art and marquees are available. So if you find a cab that's got good bones, it can be made beautiful again. Of course, there's also something to be said for a game that has a good patina and, and tells decades of stories with all the dings and scratches on its surfaces. And that is what I have for you on Atari's Lunar Lander. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I've enjoyed making it. And if you have, please consider subscribing. Look for us on Google Play, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on our website at VectorCastPodcast.com, Facebook at Facebook.com slash VectorCast, or follow us on Instagram at Instagram.com slash VectorCastPodcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope to see you again on our next episode where we will be discussing Atari's second vector game, 1979's runaway hit and all-time classic, Asteroids. (laughs) ¶¶